Well, it's an honor and privilege to be here. I know that this is a very important uh, subject. It's a timely subject. It's a sensitive subject. Um, it's a scary subject. I, I know that there are probably some people sitting here terrified by what might come out of my mouth. I'm slightly terrified by what might come out of my mouth, so we're in the same boat. Um, there will be time for a Q&A, and we're talking about maybe establishing a, you know, something beyond this, especially for the people who can't come through the door. How do I tell you about my conversion to Christ without making it sound like an alien abduction or a train wreck? Truth be told, it felt a little like both. And the language that Christians normally use to describe conversion did not make sense for me. Uh, I, I never uh, just looked at the Bible and very logically compared it to my life the way that one might line up an insurance policy and then cleanly and logically make a decision for Christ. I certainly made decisions along the course of my journey, but none of them felt logical, risk-free, or even sane. And I also didn't have some kind of an emotional experience. I mean, I certainly, my, my heart and mind were engaged in conversion, but I, I never at any point just thought that being a Christian would make my life easier. Uh, and so I didn't, I didn't say, well, phew, you know, finally, uh, the work gets to stop now and Jesus gets to take over. And I didn't, I didn't have that kind of an experience either. What, what really happened is my, my Christian life, um, it, 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 it occurred, as I said last night, in the process of lengthy and consistent conversations with a Christian neighbor who helped me to see my life through a lens that I didn't have who held up a mirror to me as an image bearer uh, that was different from the one that I was using, who, who cared about my dignity as much as I did, but used language that terrified me. So these were Christian neighbors and their names are Ken and Floy Smith. Floy went to be with the Lord a few years ago. Ken is in his 90s and is still alive, is praying for this conference. Um, is quite, um, you know, quite, quite alert to the things of the day. Um, and by the time I had met Ken and Floyd Smith, I had spent one decade of my life in serially monogamous lesbian relationships, and I had spent two decades working to advance LGBT rights and causes. Um, very much the world we live in now is the world I helped create. The blood is very much on my hands. I was not just the nice lesbian next door who lived quietly and walked her dog. I, I wrote the first domestic partnership policy, which was the forerunner of gay marriage in the United States. Um, I spoke at gay pride marches, and I did everything I did uh, thinking that I was uh, doing the right thing and that I was helping the world to be a better and a more diverse and a more helpful place. Now let me tell you that I didn't always think I would be a lesbian. I'm named Rosaria, I'm named after the Rosary. I was raised uh, in the Catholic Church. I presumed that I would at some point get married and have children and um, in college I dated men and as I was dating men, I was falling in love with women and that's a very awkward thing to be doing. Um, and so when I finally came out as a lesbian at the age of 28, I didn't think I was making a big splash. Life finally came together for me and made sense. I felt like I was just living 
my authentic life. And my life as a lesbian seemed normal. I considered it an enlightened path. I believed that lesbian sexuality was cleaner and more moral than anything else. And I simply always preferred symmetry to asymmetry. And so I simply believed I had found my real self. And the name Jesus, which had um, rolled off my tongue in a little girl's prayers and then rolled off my back in college at this point in my life made me recoil in anger. And so um, at 28, I had, uh, I had I was, I'd finished my PhD. I was, uh, I was a professor at Syracuse University, a young professor. I was one of the people hired and you know, recruited and mentored uh, and then eventually tenured to create the LGBTQ uh, uh, curriculum as well as community. So I was very much on the ground floor of what's happening right now. Um, I, I, when I was a professor, I really found Christians to be the most perplexing people in the world. I, I really did. Um, I, I, you, you, you made no sense to me. You, you, you believe that the Bible is the is the is the the true story, and yet the Christian students were the worst readers I had. Uh, they 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 would use the Bible like it was some kind of punctuation mark to end a conversation rather than to deepen it. And that was just so bizarre to me. But the most frustrating thing for me about Christians was what appeared to be your refusal to just leave consenting adults alone. And I did not understand why you wouldn't do that. And so I decided after my tenure book was written to write a book on the religious right, trying to really understand your hermeneutics, trying to understand why you wouldn't leave people like me alone. Now, I'm an English professor by training, uh, so I can't just go to a, a, you know, the New Horizon conference and stick a microphone under your mouth and say, why are you here? What do you think about you know, the LGBTQ situation and people who identify on that spectrum? I actually had to you know, read the Bible uh, because that's what I am. I'm a reader. And um, I was surprised. Um, I was really surprised when I started reading the Bible. I expected it to be like the placards I saw at gay pride marches. And it wasn't that. Uh, it wasn't that. It had deep and compelling philosophy and full, fully comprised narrative stories. Um, it absolutely had a worldview that I hated. Let's be clear about that. But it was a very convicting and in engaging book. I mean, it was a fascinating book. Now, I. Um, I'm a 19th century scholar, so the, the, the worldviews that I was coming from were coming from Freud, Hegel, Marx, and Darwin. And the 19th century was a time of high scientism when, when religion and science were, I think, fully polarized, at least in the academy. And so I really thought I was prepared to take on the Bible and, the, and you know, just the, some of the things uh, that, that, that you all were concerned about. And, and at this time, I was also very happily partnered with a woman who was also a professor, and we were very fully involved in um, AIDS activism and in golden retriever rescue and in literacy. And it was simply hard to argue that she and I were anything but, but good caregivers and good citizens. So some of the things I saw on gay pride marches, you know, on the placards from Christians about how we were monsters, like, well, you could believe that until you sat down and talked with me, and then you would no longer believe that. And if that was the only argument that the Christians had, that was gonna be really easy to dismantle. And I will just say, coming from now as a, as a Christian, 
um, who can look back on these days, if your theology cannot extend between understanding that your neighbors who identify as lesbian are sinners, and at the same time, they might very well be the nicest people on the block. If you are not preparing your children to understand the difference between saving grace and common grace, you will lose them. You will lose them to the vampire that I used to be. It is that serious. So um, after my tenure book was written, I started to read the Bible. I started to work on this book on the religious right. Uh, wrote a, an article that showed up in the local newspaper about some events on campus. The article got really big, ended up with, you know, this was back in the days when people actually wrote letters. Go figure. Um, at, you know, boxes, you know, hate mail, fan mail. Received one from Ken Smith, the pastor of the Syracuse Reformed Presbyterian Church. And it was it was such a perplexing and disarming letter. And, I, and I'll, I've come later to understand that's a little bit like the gospel itself. It wasn't hate mail, it wasn't fan mail. And at the end of the letter, he said, look, my wife and I would love to sit down and talk with you um, if you'd like that. And I thought, well, great, I need a research assistant on this, you know, on this book. I'm, you have the right pedigree, sounds fantastic. I will be there, what can I bring? Um, so uh, we started to meet and I probably had, I don't know, somewhere between 200 and 500 meals at their house before it even looked like I was halfway not going to fight with the gospel and fight with them. So it was not easy for them. It was not easy for them at all. Um, but one of the things that happened in the course of these meals that we would have is we, I was reading the Bible because I wanted to critique it. And I'm absolutely convinced that most pastors will sit down with anyone reading the Bible. It's so encouraging. Um, and I, I think the church needs to do a little more of that too. <laughs> but, but I was reading it about five hours a day because I was on a research leave. And that gives the Holy Spirit a lot of time to work in somebody's life. Um, Ken and his wife, Floy, and I became friends. They entered my world. Um, my home was a hospitality home, too. The AIDS crisis had, been, had just shot through New York. People were dying at a rate we did not understand. Our home was open just like Ken and Floy Smith's home. And they would come on one of the nights that my home was open, and they would meet my friends. And they would listen, and they, were, they, they, they didn't act as if we were polluting them or that they didn't have time for us. They made a lot of time for us. And when we were together, it was, it was striking because Ken Smith never treated me like a blank slate. He never just said, look, Rosaria, sin makes a lot of problems for people. You are like a problem factory. Just commit your life to Jesus, and it's all going to be great. He didn't do that. He, he knew that there was a lot on the line and he also knew that I needed to count the costs. When we would eat together before the meal, Ken would pray, and he would pray in a way I'd never heard before. And just the simple table address would often haunt me later. And it, it made me think about who is this God to whom this neighbor of mine is praying? I mean, it was unusual. Ken's God was holy, but firm, and filled with mercy. And there is so much paradox and disarming in that that I, I couldn't even put my, put my mind on it. Um, so I did start to meet with Ken and Floyd regularly and read the Bible in earnest. And I, I'm an English professor by training. I wanted to understand its textual authority, its authorship, its canonicity, its internal hermeneutics, the differences among the, 
the ceremonial law and the judicial law and the moral law. And slowly and over time, the Bible actually started to take on a life and a meaning that really startled me. And some of my well-worn paradigms just didn't hold up anymore. I, I had some stereotypes about all of you. And as I was meeting with Ken and Floyd and reading the Bible, I had to let go of some of those. Um, I had to really ponder the hermeneutical claim that this book was different from all the others because it was inspired by a holy God and it was inherently true and trustworthy. But it was also hard for me to do that because I fundamentally rejected what I believed was the false simplicity of Christian logic, its doctrine of sin and its belief that the, the Bible was God-breathed. And so this was interesting. One of the ways that I work out books, when I, especially if I'm trying to write a book about people who are different from I am. I recently, well, 2015, I wrote a book about gay Christianity, which I think is absolutely heretical, whether you're side B or side A. I think it's, it's neo-orthodoxy at best, and I think it's heretical. And I wrote a book about it, and I hired a gay Christian to be my research assistant. So I am constantly, when I'm writing books, even now on the other side, working to see things from other points of view so that I am not making straw men out of my arguments. My arguments are very firm. I know that. You know, nobody ever tells me they leave a conversation not feeling, you know, a little bit ruffled, so I get that. But I hire people who think differently than I do so that I can do this with integrity. And so so this is what I wrote actually in my journal after meeting with Ken and Floyd and reading the Bible first times through. Okay. Christians believe that because Jesus paid with his life for the sin of those who repent and believe in him, they will have Christ's power to flee even from unchosen sin, which the Bible records as treason against God and punishable by death and hell. Now, I noticed that as I read the Bible, that its admonitions about sin were often followed by offers of grace, and that the God of the Bible actually does deal differently with people when they deal differently with him. But I did not, I fundamentally did not understand how a system like that was going to work for me. I didn't think I was hurting anyone. I believed I was being my authentic self. I believed that my partner and I together could do more good in the world than alone. And I recoiled at the idea that being a lesbian meant living in sin. I mean, who in her right mind would choose a God you can't see over a lover you can? So it seemed to me, this is, this is the best concession I could make after the first few passes through the Bible. The Bible was really good news for some of you and really bad news for some of us. And that's just where it was. But I couldn't get past, you know, Ken Smith didn't sit down and just hammer on Romans 1 with me. We didn't just, let's talk about sexuality. In fact, I was the one who wanted to do that. And he wouldn't go there. He would just instead talk exclusively about who God is. And I mean, I couldn't get him off topic if I tried. And you know, I'm a professor. I'm used to getting people off topic and commandeering the topic. I couldn't do it. Ken continued to tell me that God is the creator of all things. And that if the Bible has God's seal of truth and power, then it needed to be logical that the Bible had the right to interrogate my life and my culture and not the other way around. And I couldn't argue with that. All of that hung on that big, you know, that big, that big preposition, if, if the Bible is true. 
But if the Bible was true, then it made sense to me that it had the right to interrogate me and my life and not the other way around. And even as a postmodern reader, I understood the idea that authority depended only on that which is higher than itself. I mean, and then I thought, well, who's higher than God? You know, I mean, if this is true, if, 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 this system does make sense. Now, my friends knew that I was reading the Bible because everybody knows what I'm writing about when I'm writing. And um, a particular friend felt that it was more than a research subject. And it was my, my transgendered friend, Jill, who came into the kitchen and put her, her large hand over my small hand and said, look, Rosaria, this Bible reading is changing you and I'm scared and I don't like it. And I said, well, Jill, what if it's true? What if Jesus is a real and risen Lord? And what if we are all in trouble? And Jill said, oh, you know, I know, I know. Uh, you know, I was a Presbyterian meet, a minister for 15 years. I prayed that the Lord would heal me. He didn't. If you'd like, I'll pray for you. And I thought, well, I don't have a sinus infection, and I don't have plantar fasciitis, and I don't know why I need your prayers. I, you know, I don't need healing. I, gay is good. So I rejected what my friend was saying, and I also rejected what the Bible was saying, because it didn't say I needed healing either. I still didn't have a sinus infection. I still didn't have plantar fasciitis. I, I had what the Bible called an indwelling sin, and I didn't want to repent of that one either. Um, and so, uh, you know, I just, I just, you know, decided I was going to reject both paradigms. And the next day when I came home from work, I found two large milk crates just spilling over with books. And these were Jill's books from seminary. I want you to say, this is so funny. I see that there's a fly in here. And, and I love the fact that you don't have met a wasp. You don't have very many. In North Carolina, where I'm from, they're like this big. And you could, you could take them to the vets. You know, like you could, you could name them Spiky. And, you know, and your kids just get used to it. Isn't that terrible? <laughs> but when, when uh, you know, I was looking through Jill's books, I found that they were not only books from seminary, they were, they were her journal. They were her journal of, of grace, her journal of rejection of the gospel, the, her journal of hardship, her journal of suffering, her journal of isolation, her journal of shame. She had written in the margins of these books, and it was, it was compelling. And I got to one, and it was the exposition of the Book of Romans by Calvin, and in it, in big block handwriting, totally different from the handwriting in all of the other books, she just wrote, watch out. And so with Jill as my, my guide, if you will, I looked at Romans 1 and I tried to look at it through the eyes of somebody who bought it. See, I was still reading this like an outsider, like, well, sorry you people believe this, I really don't. But I, I, I read it, I wanted to read it the way Jill was reading it, because obviously it was breaking her, and she was my friend. And so this is what I read, Romans 21 to 27. For even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks. But they became futile in their speculations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools, and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man, and of birds, and of four-footed animals, and crawling creatures. And therefore God gave them over in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, so that their bodies would be dishonored among them. For they exchanged the truth of God for a lie, and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator. And for this reason, God gave them over to degrading passions. 
for their women even exchanged the natural function for that which is unnatural. These verses were very powerful to read through the lens of a broken friend. They also were powerful to read from the lens of a literary professor trying to put this book together because Romans 1 all of a sudden it was clear that it was a literary echo to Genesis 3 where Eve's desire to live independently of God's authority made perfect sense to me. I mean these two literary frames one in Genesis and one in Romans stood out as the table of contents of what could possibly be said to ail the whole world. I also thought it was fascinating that Romans 1 doesn't actually end by doing what I thought it was going to do. You know, I thought there would be a few lines in there that talked about maybe homosexuality is a morally neutral form of sexual orientation, right? You know, a certain percentage of, of Romans were, were going to be in this category just like they have been since you know the dawn of time but no that, that wasn't there I expected maybe there to be something about um, how homosexuality is a discrete and separate category of inherited personhood that's how we talk about it today if you ever say the word gay person you're buying into that if you tell me that 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 you are a lesbian as I would have told you 20 years ago I was buying into that if you read Christianity Today and listen to a PCA pastor who tells you that his homosexuality is immutable and ontological, okay, that, that's where this is coming from. But the problem is, for me at this time, is you don't see this in the Bible. You don't see anything that talks about people who are, uh, I'm going to say, who have Adam's thumbprint of original sin, for whom same-sex attraction is Adam's thumbprint of original sin, there's nothing in the Bible that says that we get to be a separate category of humanity. And so I was stunned by that. I thought, well, obviously somebody cut some words out of my Bible that was missing. But, I, but one of the things that I had to think about was if that's not what the Bible says homosexuality is, if that's not what God says homosexuality is, what does God say homosexuality is? What is it? And so it was striking to me to keep reading and to see how one sin, homosexuality in this case, morphs into other sins, being filled with all unrighteousness, the Bible goes on to say, wickedness, greed, evil, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice, they are gossip, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, without understanding, untrustworthy, unloving, unmerciful, and although they know the ordinance of God, that those who practice such things are worthy of death, they not only do the same, but they give hearty approval to those who practice them. This last line, give hearty approval to those who practice them, really grabbed me by the throat for two reasons. One, I was the uh, coordinator of the LGBTQ uh, undergraduate student groups. I was giving a lot of hearty approval to a lot of people. And number two, it also helped me to see something about myself. And this was the first time, and I think I said it last night, that I felt the Bible was actually reading me instead of me reading the Bible. And that's that it pointed out to me that if you cannot receive a blessing from God, you will demand it from men. We are hardwired. We are hardwired to be blessed by God. And if we can't get the blessing we need, we're going to fill it 
with anything we can. And you know what? Political and civil rights, they're a good crutch for a while. They're a very good crutch for a while. So it was striking to me, and I had to face this, homosexuality in the Bible is presented as one step away from God's blessing and protection. But I also took note of what it didn't say about homosexuality. The Bible simply does not recognize homosexuality as an active noun, as a category of personhood. But the world has accepted this 19th century category invention of sexual orientation as an accurate representation of personhood and identity. But that's simply not how the Bible understands homosexuality. Homosexuality, from God's point of view, is an identity-rooted, ethical outworking of original sin. And therefore, it seems solidly biblical when some of us say, you know, actually, we kind of think we were born this way. It seems solidly biblical for me to say, well, well, yeah. Yeah, you know why? Because we're all born this way. You are all born with original sin. Every single human being on the planet is born with an inordinate desire for something that God will not allow for your own good. And if that's not true for you, you need some serious exploration. All right? And everybody, every Christian I know, knows what their indwelling sin is and prays 50 times a day that God would protect them from unleashing their, their unrighteous anger on people. Um, everyone has to deal with this. And I think, as I said last night, everybody has to learn how to hate your sin without hating yourself. But if you have a civil rights category that organizes your sin, it's extremely hard to do so. It is extremely hard to do so. And so I realized that by failing to rigorously relinquish my identity to God's story and failing to understand that the fall, that happened before I was born, right? And before you were born, the fall rendered my deepest and most primal feelings untrustworthy and untrue that the Bible was telling me that I had added to my ledger of original sin by creating for myself a category of personhood that God did not. God has one category of personhood. We are male and female image bearers of a holy God with a soul that will last forever and a body, a sexed body, that will be reunified with that soul somewhere either in the New Jerusalem or in hell. Now, it's, it's an interesting thing because we live in a topsy-turvy world right now. We live in a world where everything has been turned upside down. The, Theo Hobson puts it this way, you know it's a revolution when what was formerly despised is now celebrated. What was formerly celebrated is now despised. And those who refuse to celebrate will be despised. And so what you see is a complete overturning of what it means to be male and female. Um, what it means to be male and female is that God has eternal and, and, and he, has, he also has, he has very fundamental purposes for being born male and female. And those purposes come with responsibilities, blessings, and constraints, and sometimes burdens, too. That's just true. And now we live in a world that tells us, no, just the opposite is true. Your sexual orientation is immutable. You're ne it's never going to change. You're going to live with it forever. It's who you are. 
But your gender identity, hey, you know, just do what you want with it. That is yours for the changing. And so whenever you are in a situation where everything is upside down, you know Satan's got a lot to do with that. That is an Orwellian, George Orwell, Orwellian moment. So so I had to really face, I mean, I had to really think about this. This, this. There simply is no biblical category of personhood subsumed under the 19th century category invention of sexual orientation. Instead, the Bible declares that we are made in the image of God and that we have a sin orientation in Adam and a soul orientation in eternity. And once born again in Christ, a new citizenship. This is part of my, my absolute rejection of gay Christianity. New citizenship. There are no dual citizens in Christ's kingdom. You have a new citizenship, one that came in exchange for the life you loved, not in addition to it. And in spite of believing, teaching, and living the idea that sexual sexuality and gender are just social constructs. I mean, I preached that gospel for so many years I could do it in my sleep. But in spite of believing that, the Bible made it clear to me that God had actually set ethical and moral responsibilities, blessings, constraints, even burdens, for being born male or female. And that whether I liked it or not, I was accountable to that. I was accountable for being born female. Now, I had taught, studied, read, and lived a very different notion of sexuality. And for the first time in my life, I really wondered if I has, have been really wrong on this. And so I did the only sensible thing. You know, this research project, threatened by it, decided to throw it away and move on. I was threatened by this book. I tried to throw the Bible and its teachings in the trash. I told Ken Smith and Floyd, nice to meet you. I'm not going to have dinner with you any longer. We're done. My research project is done. I'm not going to write this. It's just, it's pushing every button I have. But Ken and Floyd would not let me go. They weren't exactly stalkers, but they were very close. <laughs> they were very, very close. And because we were friends, and only because we were friends, did I keep reading the Bible and keep reading keep meeting with them and discussing it. I learned from Ken and Floyd Smith that your words cannot be stronger than your relationships. So what do you do if you want to preach the gospel in words? Well, you've got to build your relationships. And I am living proof that it's really hard. I drove, I probably drove those people crazy. I mean, they're very good, polite Christians and they haven't told me that I did that, but I kind of think I did. So among other things, I was really fighting. So I put the research aside, and I just wanted to get understand this for my life. I mean, I had a stick on my desk at the time that said I'd rather be wrong on an important point than right on a trivial one. And so I was just living out what I believed was just basic morality. Um, among other things, I was fighting the idea that this Bible is inspired, inerrant, and sufficient. Those are three concepts that work just, are just so against reader response criticism. It could, you couldn't be different sides of the world. Um, I was fighting the idea that the biblical authors were moved by the Holy Spirit to record the Word of God and that the Bible was completely true and without error. I mean, folks, how could a smart cookie like me believe these things? I didn't even believe in truth. I was a postmodernist. I believed in truth claims. I believed 
the reader constructed the text. And without a reader, books are just paper and glue. And I told that to my students over and over again. And what this book was having me face, or actually even just think about, even, even just asking the question was preposterous. This book is asking people to say that both its progeny, where it came from, and its purpose is totally different from every other book on the planet. I remember going to Ken Smith one day and saying, you think that this book, that its progeny and purpose, is totally different from every other book on the planet. I have a hundred books in my office that say that you're a fool. And he said, oh, wonderful. I mean, every time I insult Ken, he'd smile and say, fantastic, we're getting somewhere. Let's talk about that. I want to come over and let's just talk about the, the Bible and its hermeneutical principles. I could not let this, I couldn't get rid of this man. I just couldn't, I tried. And after years and years of this, reading the Bible seven times through, eating at least 500 meals at these, this, these poor couple's house and it, driving them crazy, talking about this to everybody, after years and years of this, the Bible simply got to be bigger inside me than I. And it started to overflow into my world. And I fought against it with all my might, but I wasn't big enough. And then one Sunday morning, two years after I first met with Ken and Floyd Smith in their kitchen, and two years after I started reading the Bible, I woke up one Sunday morning and I left the bed I shared with my, le my lesbian lover. And an hour later, I sat in a pew at the Syracuse Reformed Presbyterian Church. To say I felt like a freak sitting there in church is a small, small, there aren't enough adjectives. And then add to it that Ken Smith had never taken any training class on how to be sensitive to people who are different. So I walked through the door and he said, oh, Rosaria, we're so glad to see you. Why don't you sit right up here with Floyd? And so I kind of walked down the aisle and you know I'm noticing no one else had a butch haircut and nobody else had piercings and uh, no other woman was wearing jeans and Doc Martin boots you know like there's there just and I sat next to Floyd and she just leaned over and she gave me the, the same big hug she had given me 500 times in her home and said well you know I love you I'm glad you're here you can breathe <laughs> I sat there through that whole church service, and all I kept thinking about was last year's Gay Pride March, wide as it was with people just like me, people who made me feel safe and loved, people that I valued as family, people I took vacations with, people whose children called me Aunt Rosaria. And when I crossed the threshold of the church door, I feared that I was going to become a traitor and a betrayer to everyone I loved in the world, and that is in truth, that is in truth what happened. I, I kept going back to church to hear more sermons. Ken's sermons were fascinating. He was a different man. He was the same man behind the pulpit and a different man behind the pulpit, if that makes sense. And I was a little fascinated by that. Um, and I also realized I had friends at the university who were members of that church. And with these Christians in my life, these friends were making my life easier. I mean, I was, I was on a war against what they believed. And yet, they would do things like save me a seat at a meeting or help me figure out a budget item when, you know, English professors aren't exactly notorious for being great at that and other things. 
It was just, it, it was amazing to me. I didn't understand it. The other thing I didn't understand about these people is the way they could quote the Bible in big chunks really well. Now, English professors by training love textual cross-referencing. You know, it's like our love language. It's phenomenal. And I couldn't, I couldn't believe the way they, they, and now that I was going to their church, even at lunch, they'd sort of like do this kind of thing. And they'd like, how could you do this? They would quote the Bible, putting themselves under the authority of the Bible. And I thought to myself, are you people crazy? Why are you doing this? It seemed like the most dangerous thing in the world to be under God's ontology, under his authority. I certainly wasn't planning on uh, on doing that. That seemed crazy. In fact, it seemed like you could be dead if you did that. And so I just kept that to myself and kept going back to church. But I noticed something else about my Christian friends, even the engineers, and this was driving me crazy. When the engineers are better readers of the book than I am, oh, I get testy. And, and even the engineers were able to just sort of work their way around this book. And I really thought, why? Why are they able to do this? Why can they, why are they, and why do they forgive me and others? Why don't they curse at these faculty meetings? Why aren't they gossiping? Why are they so different than I am? Why do they love me so well? Wouldn't my life be different if I could do that? Nah, I can't do it, so give that one up. You know, but it was just, I, I, they were perplexing to me. And then one Lord's Day, Ken was preaching. He started a, a, a sermon series in the Gospel of Matthew. And Matthew, from a literary perspective, is the most wonderful of Gospels because you have these, these wild metaphors. You have the wildest metaphors in the world in the Gospel of Matthew. You know, especially, you know, seeds being choked by the world. And, and then you've got that nameless kid whose bread and fish turns to a feeding of the 5,000. And, you know, if I were the editor, that nameless kid would have a name. He had a very important job. And so, you know, it was just, it was one of those heady books to me, and I thought it was really intriguing. And, and then one Lord's Day, Ken stopped at Matthew 15, 16. It was Jesus's cutting question to impetuous Peter. Do you still lack understanding? And then he, he just held us in this really long pause. And I thought, wow, what does the frozen chosen do when that man behind the pulpit has a heart attack? You know, they all just sit there. Who's going to call? You know, it's 911 in the U.S. You know, who's going to get the medics in here? This is really serious. He held us in the longest pause. It was so annoying. And then he finally perked up and, whew, okay, the man's not dead. And then he said, congregation, if you are a believer, Christ would have said that to you. And I thought, oh, no, no, no. First of all, no, I'm not a believer. But I must say, I've been wondering why am I lacking understanding. But no, 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 don't put me in this camp. Do you lack understanding? Why do you lack understanding? If you're a believer, Christ is, you know, this is your question. And I'm just shaking my head at this point. And until, I mean, I was trying so hard to stay not believing anything he said. But for this split second, before I could just shove everything down and repackage it, in my gay rights world and throw it out the window, I really wondered, who is speaking right now? That old man I thought was dead or the God man before, behind the foundation of the world? And then, although I couldn't keep shoving it down, what I had to face was God's holiness. 
I didn't know what it was because what I actually faced was an image that made me feel like I was going to throw up in the middle of church. It was an image of, of, of me um, in a sea, a raging sea, and everyone I loved. And this, I think it was very Dante. I think I was probably teaching Dante at the time too, you know, sort of taking us down to hell. And there we were, everybody that we loved, and we were looking at each other and we were hating each other. We weren't, it wasn't a party boat. And I just, I just, I remember saying, why, Lord, why, you know, why? And I, I, I felt strongly the, the, the spirit recalling to my mind this biblical warning that, that I had heard a lot. And that's that rejecting the Bible's authority over every part of your life is the most dangerous and stupid thing you could do. It is dangerous. And I realized that we really did that, 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 that we had rejected. And it was funny, because when I hear the word reject, you think about an exchange, a positive exchange. But because God is the creator of the world, and because I am an image bearer, by living as a lesbian, I had rejected, I had rejected God's authority over my body, my mind, my sexuality, and my identity. And I realized at that moment that if the Bible is true, I was dead. And if the Bible is false or semi-true or just neo-orthodoxically true, like our friends in the gay Christian movement will have it, then I'm simply the biggest fool on earth. And you shouldn't invite me to come across the ocean and speak to you. Um, but God's promises started to roll in like another wave uh, in my world. And at that point, Ken uh, had moved to John and we were in John 7:17. If anyone wills to do God's will, he shall know concerning the doctrine. And this verse seemed to expose the quicksand in which my feet were stuck. Um, I was a thinker. I was paid to read books, write about those books, and then tell everybody else what to think about them. So in my world, the idea that that you know, that obedience would come before understanding would be negligence. And I'd heard Christians say this, and I'd say, oh, great, try that with Virgil. You know, if you don't know Greek, how are you going to translate it? I don't, that makes no sense to me. Um, and I also realized, I mean, I just rejected it. I thought that was dumb. I didn't like it. I thought you thought first and then you obeyed. You thought it through, right? Um, but I also realized that part of that was me really wanting God to show me on my terms why homosexuality was a sin. And as soon as I articulated like that, it like that, I realized it's because I wanted to be the judge, not the one being judged. I mean, perhaps I thought like Eve in the garden, I wanted to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and I wanted to become and replace God. And then when I wrote those kinds of words in my journal, I realized, well, hadn't I already done that? I mean, hadn't we all in the garden? You know, if if my consciousness actually fell with Adam's sin, as the Bible purports, it's no wonder I can't think my way out of this quandary. This is not learning Latin. This is different. This wasn't a game of thinking, of skill building, of matching of wits. It was a question. Could my heart echo God's call for obedience? Could I will to do God's will just this once? The stakes were so high because they always are. But this verse promised me 
understanding after obedience. And I wrestled with the question, did I really want to understand homosexuality from God's point of view, or did I just want to argue with him? I have a PhD in arguing. I'm really good at it. I, I love to use my gifts. I've not been able to use any of them in the church, by the way. But, you know, because God knew they, were, they all came with fangs. So I did something crazy that I hadn't done in my, at this now, two and a half years of reading the Bible and exploring things. I actually went into my room, closed the door, and I prayed. I prayed that night that God would give me the willingness to obey before I understood. I prayed that God would be pleased to reveal his son in me. I prayed that I would be a vessel of Jesus. And then I thought about it. Vessel vessel well I'm a, I'm a I'm a different kind of vessel I'm not just I'm not just a vessel I mean even the shades in Dante's hell know that they're men or women I didn't and I, I let the word slip out of my mouth Lord could you help me know what it means to be a woman and if so could you help me be a godly woman and then I simply laughed out loud in the absurdity of that prayer. I really did. I really did. I had never thought about these things in my life. But I also took my own temperature and I realized that praying to God to help me be a woman was actually as terrifying, maybe more so, than praying to be a godly woman. So I left that night of prayer in a complete bust. I thought, well, that's fascinating. It works for some people, but this is just... But it left me with one question. I, you know, I'm always being left with questions. Just one question. Could original sin be for real? And could it really distort me like this? Is my sexual desire and love for women a reflection of the real me? That's what I thought it was. Or is it a distortion of the real me the true me through original sin is being a lesbian my authentic self or is it Adam's thumbprint on my life who am I you know philosophers continental philosophers always distinguish between what is true and what is real true is the lived and the felt and the real is the ontological the deep the original the purposeful and I wondered if being a lesbian while very real was perhaps not true. I mean, if Jesus could split the world asunder, divide the soul and the spirit, judge the thoughts and the intentions of the heart, could he make my true identity prevail? I mean, who will God have me to be? Oh, I still felt like a lesbian in my body, in my mind, in my heart. I felt my flesh's identity. How could I not? But what is my Christian identity, I wondered, if I have such a thing? See, the Bible makes clear that the fallen flesh and a redeemed mind have a very troubled relationship this side of eternity. And for many people in the Bible, their redeemed identity and calling only came after a long struggle with God, with wilderness, with dreams and hopes and plans dashed and destroyed. What will become of me if Jesus takes over, I wonder? You see, the cross is ruthless. I don't think Christians... Some Christians I meet don't seem to know this. I know this. I faced it. I, it's, the cross is ruthless. It's an instrument of execution. It's not a little piece of jewelry. And it makes no ally with the sin it crushes 
on the cross. It makes no ally with the sin it crushes because it only could do that through the death and resurrection of the Lord. In order to for God to make my sin his ally, the entire trinity would have to explode. I mean, do we see that this is a different religion? And what if I commit my life to Christ and my lesbian feelings never disappear? I was terrified of that. Wouldn't you be? Does that mean that God does not love me or hear me or care? And here I was almost three years later, seven times through in the Bible, going to church, hanging out with Christians along with all of my friends who identify as gay, and asking the same question I had three years prior. Is the gospel bad news for people who identify on the LGBTQ spectrum? And is, is it only good news for people who don't? But, you know, I had been discipled by Ken Smith, so I could never leave any conversation with my own feelings. This would be a good lesson. And in fact, when people come to me today and say, I am still very much struggling, what should I do? I, I will go through the attributes of God because the identity of God's elect is God. The, the particulars of the identity of the elect of God are the particulars of the Godhead, which we do not know enough. But we who are all post-Freudian, who have therapists that are dearer to us than our church membership sometimes, let me tell you, we can, we can preach the gospel of our own feelings all the time. But I was discipled by Ken Smith, so I knew I was not going to be allowed to stay there. And so the question that did come up both in my own mind and in the discipling that I was receiving was, no, 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 that's not the question, Rosaria. The question is, who is Jesus? Do I know him? And do I still lack understanding? And fundamentally, can I trust him? And then one ordinary day I came to Jesus. I was in church and we were singing from Psalm 119. We're psalm singers, no instruments. And when the line, this has become mine, came out of my mouth, I gasped in horror. I had actually just sung condemnation unto myself, and I was for the first time in my life in tune enough with the Holy Spirit to feel it. it was, I almost laughed out loud. This Bible was not mine. I had scorned it and cursed it and despised it. I understand I'd read it seven times, maybe eight times at this point, but I had scorned it and cursed it and despised it, and I had taught thousands of college students to do the same. But I had read the Bible through, and I actually saw for myself that it had a holy author. I saw for myself that it really was a canonized collection of 66 books. I heard for myself that when the phrase, this has become mine, came out of my mouth in congregational singing, I was attesting to one simple truth all the lesbian stuff was aside, it was all still true, but the one organizing truth was this. I believed that Jesus was who he said he is. I believed that God was in charge. I believed in God's holiness. And I, I wanted to hear God breathe into my life. And I wanted God to hear my prayers. And the fog burned away. And the whole Bible, each jot and each tittle, 
was my open highway to a holy God. My hands let go of the wheel of self-invention. I came to Jesus alone, open-handed and naked. I had no dignity upon which to stand. As an advocate of peace and social justice and LGBTQ rights, I thought I was on the side of kindness, compassion, care, diversity. It was a crushing revelation to discover it was actually Jesus I had been persecuting the whole time. Uh, Not some historical figure named Jesus, but my Jesus, my prophet, my priest, my king, my savior, my husband, my friend. So of course there's only one thing to do when you come face to face with the living God. You simply fall on your face and you repent of your sin. I started by repenting of my pride. The pride that led me to believe that I could invent my own rules of faith and life, of sexual autonomy, and the pride that said I was entitled to live separately from God as long as I did so as a consenting adult in a nice, decent moral framework that that had already written its own rules. I learned that it was pride that led me to believe that self-worth was self-invented. Somebody once asked me, why did you start with pride? Why not sexuality? There are two reasons. One was sexuality was way too scary and way too hard, and I couldn't go there for years. And the other is my home was actually the warehouse for the Gay Pride March. I had about 30 posters in my house that said pride. So, you know, we reform types don't usually say that God gives you a sign, but I think maybe that would have been one of them. I learned that repentance is the daily posture of the Christian, that repentance is the threshold to a holy God. I learned that repentance is the only no-shame solution to a renewed Christian life because it proves only the obvious that God was right all along. Conversion did not immediately change my sexual desires for women. You see, I was actually never converted out of homosexuality. I was converted out of unbelief. But converted I was, and therefore I could not make false peace with what had become a sin of my identity. I had to break up with my girlfriend. And then I had to do the hardest thing. I had to break up with all women. I did. I had to break up with all women. I had to, I had to break up with the idea that I would ever have a, a, a functionally codependent relationship one-on-one with another woman who would be my best friend for life and eventually my lover. I, it had to stop. It simply had to stop. And that was hard. That was not easy. That was not pleasant. That was not something that that came easily. Um, I learned more about repentance those years than I did about anything else. And I learned that repentance could actually give glory to God. I learned that repentance proves that God was true all along. I learned that you, um, you grow to be more like Jesus when you repent. I learned that you could repent of your, your sin and you could do good mercy work in the world. I learned that 
I could repent of my sin and not even talk to other people about their sin and just my own repentance was something they felt like they had to talk about. Um, I learned that we serve a God who lives, who hears our prayers, who loves his people, who liberates captives, who equips us to live full lives in Christ as the strongholds of sin are broken down through the grace of Christ's blood. Now, I did pray that the Lord would, would, would make me a godly woman. And then eventually, I will tell you this, one of, the, one of the women in my church, I mean, I think this would probably be illegal today, right? Actually came to me and said, you know, have you ever thought, just, just question, have you ever thought about, would you ever want to be a wife and a mother? I mean, just, just a question. And I, and I thought, well, well, yes, but, but how could I? You know, and she said, well, you know, I get that. I get that. That makes sense. Do you want us, you know, we won't. If you don't want us to, if you're good, everything's good, that's great. But do you want us to pray for you? Do you want us to pray about that? We'll do that. I said, well, yeah, but I just don't want anybody coming at me with makeup, okay? Like, I, 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 can, like, I can sort of handle, imagine, I mean, I can. I can. I can imagine being a godly wife to a godly husband. You know, I am, I am not sort of universally attracted to men, but I can imagine one man, you know, prayer partner for life, um, you know, marriage being the place that we learn to love each other as husband and wife. I can picture all of that, but, you know, I'm not going to wear makeup. I'm, you know, still going to look pretty awkward in a dress, you know, just, just, just don't do the makeover on me. They said, no, 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 that's okay. Did you read Proverbs 31? She's got really good arms, you know, she's, <laughs> it's okay, you're okay. And then years later, that's what happened. You know, what happened is that the Lord brought Kent Butterfield into my life. And we have been uh, joyfully serving the Lord together uh, as husband and wife for 18 years. Uh, and I don't, I'm not saying this because it's like the trophy of the story. The trophy of the story is God is who he says he is. He has sent a savior to redeem us. The blood of Christ washes you clean. And, and, and I'm, I also don't believe that everyone is called to be married. I believe that singleness is not secondhand gospel citizenship. I don't believe that singles in the church need to be fixed or fixed up. But I also don't need, think that we need to be afraid of talking to people for whom homosexuality is our indwelling sin and saying, have you thought about biblical marriage? Some of them will say yes and some of them will say no. Follow their lead. We, we know ourselves, we, we, we know, but, but here's what we don't know. We don't know the power of God to equip us in this world. We, we are often so afraid of the sufficiency of Scripture. You know, I've been studying Paul lately, and it's fascinating to me that Second Timothy was, that was the book he wrote before he died. And he knew he was going to die. He was going to be executed by Nero, under Nero. He was on a life sentence in prison. And what 2 Timothy says is the gospel is sufficient. It's sufficient for me. It's sufficient for you. It's sufficient for you if, if, if uh, same-sex attraction is an indwelling sin pattern. It's sufficient for you. He could have said anything else. He could have said a million things. He was in a Roman prison, for goodness sake. He could have said a lot of things in that letter, but he, got, he had one core message. The gospel is sufficient. So do we believe this? Do we believe 
that the gospel is sufficient. And so, you know, when I share my testimony in today's culture, it's like a foreign language. My, my life as a lesbian back in the 90s in New York, you know, it, it, I think some of my, my students probably think it's like the ruins of ancient history, you know, like there were the pyramids and then there was Dr. Butterfield as a lesbian, you know, and, that's, and it, it's so ridiculous. Um, I will tell you that when Ken Smith and I started to gather for meals and hospitality, he told me up front that he didn't, he didn't approve of me as a lesbian. He told me, I accept you, but I don't approve of you. And I think that would be hate speech in today's culture. Recently, a former neighbor of mine called me up and she said, we, we can't be friends anymore because you don't approve of me. I'm a lesbian now and you don't approve of me. And I said, Ruth, I'm so sorry you thought I ever approved of you. You know, we were neighbors. We disagreed about everything. You know, chicken nuggets, spanking, Pixar films. Ah, here, newsflash. I never approved of you and you never approved of me. So why, who's changing the logic? You know, this is the, the gay rights movement has a lot of logical ideas that make no sense. You know, and Christians need to be able to step up and say, I never approved of you, but I've always loved you. And I'm going to keep on doing that. And, you know, that's what I said to her. And she laughed out loud. She said, you know, it's true. I never approved of you. I, I just thought you're, you know, you were barbarian. You know, that food you would make me when I was pregnant, I'd flush it down the, the toilet. It was awful. I, could, I never, but it's true. I loved you. It's true. You know, that's where we arrived. Um, when I walked out of the, through the doors of the church, I knew that the church believed that homosexuality, both as a sexual practice and an identity, was a sin. This is back, you know, back in the old days when atheists knew they were atheists. It makes you very winsome and sentimental, but very, 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 yes, very wistful and very sentimental for those days. We never would have, I never, I, I've never heard of a gay Christian until I started meeting them about, you know, six years ago. It was not a term because it's not a term. Okay, it's not a helpful term. It's not a helpful term for people for whom homosexuality is an indwelling sin. Do not label me with that term. You will see all those feminist self-defense classes I took in New York come out in full force. I do not do it. I need to learn how to hate my sin without hating myself, and you do too. Um, so, you know, the, the church didn't think I needed to be revoiced. The church didn't think I needed to teach the church uh, how to be sensitive to me. The church felt I needed to learn the gospel was sufficient. But there's one other thing the church knew I needed, and that was family. The church knew I needed family. I'd come from the gay rights movement in New York. Every night of the week, someone's home was open for food and fellowship. We were involved in each other's lives. And when the Lord drew me to myself and I, can, I committed my life to Jesus and I joined this church, that's what this church did for me. You know, root beer floats at Ron and Robbins on Friday night and puzzles at Ken and Becky's on Saturday. And, they were so busy, I just finally said to them, look, I can't do this every night. I'm a professor. I have, I have, I have things to think about. <laughs> but they never, they ne I was never lonely. I was alone. I was alone with ideas that I had to confront. But I was never lonely. And then a few months later, when a graduate student who was, uh, had traveled internationally to work with me in queer theory, can you imagine how horrible that would be? to travel internationally to work with me in queer theory and I'm not directing those dissertations anymore. That's, that's awful. She tried to commit suicide. And um, she, she um, I got the phone call at 3 a.m. because I was, I was her advisor. 
and I knew that my, my lesbian community would need to be there and, and my Christian community would need to be there. And so, so we did. And she was in the ICU burn ward for a month. And then after a month, she, she, had, she had to recover someplace. But, you know, we were all workaholics. We, we didn't have a home where someone was home caring for people. So she recovered at Ken and Floyd Smith's house. And, and so they were able to, to show what Christian hospitality means to strangers. Um, and so I, I, I leave you with this. Um, I'm, not a, I'm not a wannabe preacher. I, I don't exposit a text. I have the hard, hardest time just living out the Bible. So I leave you with this. Um, the gospel is sufficient. It is sufficient for what you are going through. It is sufficient for what your children are going through. And furthermore, because it is sufficient, even in the midst of this struggle that you are in, you can have joy. You can have complete joy in the Lord as you are praying for your prodigal children. You can have complete joy in the Lord as you are living out that battle in Galatians 5.17, the flesh not getting what, it's, what it wants. And you can know that as a son and daughter of the Lord of this universe, that you are already standing in robes of righteousness. You can prepare for what it means to have a glorified mind and a glorified body by rehearsing all of those things that glorified minds and bodies do. Worship God and trust Him and believe and don't be afraid to share that with your neighbors. But I know, I know your neighbors. I was one of them. Your words can't be stronger than your relationships. And so that's the challenge, I think, for Christians. The challenge for some Christians is having their orthodoxy in the right place. The challenge for other Christians is working out their time so that they can actually be with the people who most need to hear from you. So I'm, I'm a Reformed Presbyterian. I'm going to use Reformed language right now. It does not reflect on New Horizons or whatever I signed to say I wasn't going to, you know. But, but I would say um, God's, there, there's a category called the unconverted elect. And I believe there's a lot of those people. And I believe God knows I'm a very busy homeschool mom. And I believe most of the unbelievers I encounter are probably in that category. And so it is with that feeling, that, that, that approach to people, that I try to get to know my neighbors because I was that neighbor. I could have no more walked through the door of your church than I could walk on the moon. If Ken Smith had come to me and handed me a little prayer card and said we're having a little a little vigil at the church tonight, I just it would have gone in the in the rubbish. He was the bridge to the church. And that's where we are now. You are the bridge to the church. All right, I'm going to stop talking, and I'm going to. We can do. We have time for Q and A, and then um, please let you know. We need to do more. If there's something that we're not done with here, let let me let Mark know, and we will do everything we can to 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 make this happen. So yes, you can leave without. This is a good time to leave if you need to leave. No pause. But if you would just thank you, if you would just raise your hand, there are seats available, so the people who are now sitting, who've been you know dealing with the wasps and things, can take some seats. If you have questions, um, 
please raise them. And my rule for questions is you ask anything and I filter if I need to. Okay, say it loudly so I'll repeat it in the microphone. Right, how was I able to love my former LGBTQ community? Well, the example that I gave you of my students recovering with both the Christian community and the lesbian community around her would be, a, the, the only way I was able to love my former community was by doing mercy work. And that is because we need to understand how dreadfully hurt they were. Okay, they were, they were not just hurt, they were betrayed. I left my lover not just because I found another woman, or even not just because I decided I wasn't gay anymore. I left my lover for Jesus. And those, are, those to the gay community are the most hateful fighting words there are. That was horrible to them. They felt betrayed. I, I, you know, when, when I say my conversion was a train wreck, you know, I had the gospel, I had Jesus. There were a lot of casualties in a train wreck. And those people were all of the people I loved best in the world. So that was one of the costs of the gospel for me. Uh, I left. I left Syracuse shortly after that for a two-year research leave because I'd written a book, and they and you, they give you those things when you when you write books. And I wanted to study whether Christians should profess at Christian colleges or secular colleges. So I went to um, uh, to actually the Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania area, and I and I worked in two different places trying to do that and wrote up something. And um, and I actually never went back to Syracuse because that's where I met and married Kent Butterfield. And so I had always thought I would have all this time, you know, because I was a tenured professor, you know, you just, you die in your desk, right? But I never, never went back. So Ken, Ken being Ken, went back. He got to know everybody. He had known them from, the, from Thursday night dinners at my house. And it was hard. It was hard. But I had to face it. I betrayed them. I did it. I did that. The gospel came with that cost. The gospel is costly. If the gospel has not cost you anything, you do not know the gospel. The gospel is costly. It will cost you things. Other questions? Yes, you have to be very loud because I use your best football mom voice. Ah, okay, this is the question about my own sexuality. Yes, this is always this is the one where I start to sweat. Right. May, I think I know your question, and I'm, I'm let me let me ask the. Oh no, you. I, Right. Let me let me go. Let me take it from here on the microphone because people are going to get tired of not being able to hear either one of us. So the question is, um, um, when is when a person for whom homosexuality is your your baseline, when you come to Christ, do your sec do your feelings ever change? Your sexual feelings and. What about the therapies that are, and, and, and not even so, yeah, the, yes, what about the therapies that are meant to help you? Why are they receiving so much persecution? First of all, it's always a funny question to ask because I will tell you, I'm a 57-year-old woman who's been happily married for 18 years, and so I think a lot has changed. I mean, I, I don't know what to say. I, I, I do not, I, I love my husband, I love our marriage, um, but I would not say, I would not say that I am, I, you know, I'm not someone who, you know, my eyes don't really wander, and, and, and I, I'm grateful for that, you know, right? I'm I mean, I think that, you know, I came out of so much sexual sin, both heterosexual and homosexual sin, that sexual sin terrifies me. So I, I very much, my marriage very much has been a place of, 
of, of, of healing and grace and growth and learning how to be a woman and learning how to be a godly woman and it has absolutely changed me. I mean, it would be just, it would be a dis, it would be dishonest to say that. Um, it's also true that my body memories have not gone away. And, and I think that's what Paul says when he talks about sexual sin being a sin against the body. That it's still your body. And so I don't think this is a particularly gay issue. I would say that for pornography addicts, you got kind of the same thing is going on here. I think it's a sexual sin problem. And I think what's helpful before we talk about, about change is to understand what sin means. Everyone has to struggle with the original sin that distorts them and condemns them. That's the sin that chose you before you chose it. And then everybody also has to struggle with the actual sin that distracts you and condemns you. Actual sin is where you, you know, you're sent out to the market to buy socks. You're not going to buy lust, you're going to buy socks, and then somebody walks down the aisle and, and you are there lust, you're in lust. And you didn't go to buy lust, you got you went to buy socks, but you ended up, you know, it just took you it just took you out. That's actual sin. You weren't prepared for it. You stop, you repent, you move on. But then there's indwelling sin, and indwelling sin is the sin that's already in the house, don't bother locking the doors. It's a sin that you've courted long enough that it knows how to manipulate you. Indwelling sin's a little bit like, like this little baby tiger that you know follows you home one day. And you notice that she's very cute and she's fluffy and she's got stripes and she grows a lot, but you think you've got her under control. You know, you name her Fluffy, you buy her a collar and a leash. And one day she wakes up and she's eating you and everybody you love alive. Okay, because that's what indwelling sin does. Right? Sin has a job, it's predatory. So you don't want to play with sin. So you definitely, you want to understand that, that homosexuality is an, in, for many of us, it's an, it's a, it starts as a, it starts as a, as a uh, original sin, moves a lot to actual sin for those of us who practiced it, and fundamentally becomes an indwelling sin. And you need to deal with it as a sin. Sin is to be mortified, not modified. And so my only concern so I'm, I'm all for therapies helping people live out their Christian life fully. And I'm also all for therapies who understand what the creation ordinance means. And it means that men are men and women are women. And, and that, 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 uh, that those of us who are called to be married are, are, are called to participate in that creation ordinance. And to be a, a, a sinner like myself and to be allowed to participate in the creation ordinance now is amazing. That's an amazing thing. Um, but my only concern with some of these um, um, uh, orientation change programs is that they confuse the mortification of sin with the modification of behavior. So I would say that I do not believe that biblical marriage is off the table for people who struggle with same-sex attraction. That would be ridiculous. I can't tell you how many people I know are faithfully, biblically, happily married who struggle with not only same-sex attraction but any number of other sins that if left to flourish would ruin any marriage. But I also don't think that the point um, is, unless, you, unless you're going to therapy you know, to choose this, I don't think the point necessarily is to deal with your sin patterns so that you can be biblically married unless that is something you feel called to do. Because you know what? Not everybody is going to be married. Now, I am no fan of the celibacy movement. I am no fan of celibate gay Christianity, partly because I just keep seeing people fall off that train 
and fall into gay affirming lives. I think it's, and I, and I think it actually violates the seventh commandment. And if you're a reformed Presbyterian, it violates your, the Westminster Confession of Faith to, to command, to tell somebody, because you struggle like this, you are called to celibacy. So I do not believe that. I think that is a, that is a, that is a, a ridiculous, uh, you know, uh, overreaction. And that is because same-sex attraction is not a group of people. It's not that there are gay people and there are straight people. If your daughter comes home um, from university and says, I'm a lesbian, you have the right to think in your mind, no, you're not. No, you're not. You're a pray for child who is really now falling into a sin pattern. There is no category of personhood, accurately speaking, called gay or lesbian. People sometimes look at me like I'm crazy, but I'm old enough to remember when Pluto was a planet. You know, it happens, it happens. In, in the university, people make categories of things and then they're wrong. And then they change around. But this one is very clear to me. There is no category of personhood called gay. But if you believe that there is, then you defend the right to sexual orientation. And that, that's a silly thing to do. So I'm fine with those therapies as long as they are you know that they they are reasonable and helpful and good and i think the the push against them is really i think it's really a push against religious liberty so i don't buy it you know when when you hear you know for the sake of your lgbtq neighbors you know this ban on reparative therapy is necessary no it's not nobody's ever forced to go to reparative therapy or any other kind of therapy um, the, what that really is, is it's a push against your religious liberty. Don't buy it. Other questions? Yeah. You know what? Back there, you're going to have to talk really loudly or just come up to the microphone. Okay. Oh, absolutely. So, you know, this is where, the, so the question has to do with the fact that um, in the wider Christian scope, we don't know what we believe in the wider Christian scope. And so I would say this is something that you you will have to decide how you are going to do this differently in the United States you know we're about five years maybe ten years ahead on the total depravity scale in terms of culture I think things might move more quickly than that because sin has a way of moving quickly but but for me I've had to be very clear what battle I'm fighting on, on that ground, okay? I, I am a Reformed Presbyterian. I have, I have a number of concerns with bishops and priests. I, I really do. I mean, I have a number of theological concerns about, about how bishops and priests, uh, you know, see their calling in Scripture and any number of other things. I, have, I, I, I reject fundamentally as Pelagiast any denomination that tells me that, that, that original sin does not condemn you. If you don't believe that, you know, if you want to throw out the middle of the book of Romans, I can't help you. All right, I can't help you. So I, I try to get it right back down to the basics. And I think Christians, before we're quick, before we're quick to, to lock arms and say, no, we're all brothers. You know, you tell me you're a Christian. You're, you're all. Well, I don't know what system you use. Um, I use the system of can you be at the Lord's table with me in my denomination. In my denomination, before you can come to the Lord's table, you need to be a member of a Bible-believing church. It doesn't have to be ours. A Bible-believing church. You need to be able to share your testimony with the elders. And it needs to be a legitimate testimony of I was a sinner saved by grace. You know, the problem with the gay Christian movement, is Wes Hill will tell you that he wants to learn how to steward his sexual orientation for the good of the church. Well, I'm sorry, but there's no gospel for that. There's only a gospel for sinners. 
There's no gospel for the righteous. That's a great place to stop, isn't okay. it? Okay, sorry. <laughs> I don't look at my...